Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, and uh, this week we have an incredible guest. I can't wait to dive into this conversation with Jeff Corwin, who is a renowned wildlife biologist, nature conservationist, and explorer. He's, of course, known for his role as the host of ABC's Ocean Treks with Jeff Corwin, Uh, and he just added a new thing to his resume minutes ago. He is uh, a survivor of a House Natural Resources Committee on the Endangered Species Act, where uh, I would submit, uh, Jeff, you were the, the star witness because of all the people we heard from on a hearing supposed to be about the Endangered Species Act, you're the only one that talked about the value of wildlife. So, Jeff Corwin, welcome to my podcast. Thank you. Delighted. You just came from this hearing um, focused on the Endangered Species Act and some Republican ideas that, that many of us think would dismantle it. Um, Over the years, you have come face-to-face with some of the most dangerous and venomous creatures in the world. How do House Republicans compare? Oh, I think it went pretty well. And, um, but in a serious note, it it, it does, uh, it's deflating to see politics play a role in common sense, pragmatic natural resource management. And historically, that wasn't always the case. We can look to incredible pioneers like Teddy Roosevelt, who, as a Republican, locked up 250 million acres of habitat, created five national parks, umpteen refuges, was critical to securing the incredible wild tableau that you can only mm-hmm. find here. I think that, for me, was the one point I wanted to share was we're talking about resources that only exist in one place, and that is in our great country. So I think my fear is that short-sightedness could ultimately stifle decades and decades of incredible success that came out of a very profound moment of desperation. People don't realize how close we came to losing the bald eagle. Mm -hmm the black-footed ferret officially extinct. We kind of sit back a little bit in our laurels. We come complacent. We bump into wild turkeys and we see deer. And I love to fish and I now catch fish that you couldn't fe- catch when my dad was my age. Um, a question I would have loved to have asked everyone in those committee, for any of them like me that have a half a century or more behind them in life, um, when did you see a bald eagle as a child? Right. That none of them did. I bet their children have, though. Well, you and I, I, I think, are of the same vintage. And we were young kids when all of these seminal environmental laws were being passed because it was a pretty scary time. DDT had wreaked havoc on the raptor population. And eagles and ospreys were on the verge of blinking out. The Great Lakes were declared dead. Rivers were catching on fire. So now that we see success, all of a sudden we're pulling back. Yeah. If anything, we should be driving forward stronger to ensure that this incredible wild natural legacy that is uniquely ours 
moves forward into the future for our children. So I want to ask you about that because we're no longer at the point where our rivers are burning and our iconic national symbol is, is about to go extinct. Uh, but we've got other things if we think about this moment in time that should cause us a lot of concern. And, uh, and I think many of us would argue we should be doubling down on the Endangered Species Act. Talk about that context, the uh, mass extinctions and other things that you have uh, spoken out about. So I often look at the successes we have. For example, um, in Massachusetts where I live, we're seeing recovery of great white sharks. For the first time, I'm actually nervous when they go diving for lobsters, <laughs> yeah. and I'm looking over my shoulder. Um, we're seeing recovers of many pinnipeds and cetaceans. The water is healthier now than it has been since the industrial era. So this incredible success that we can really use to really fuel us to deal with the incredible challenges we face. We have an unprecedented level of extinction that occurs today, and it's from what I call the perfect extinction storm. Climate change, habitat loss, environmental degradation, and exploding human population growth, the black market wildlife trade, a mm -hmm. uh, $20 billion industry, who's to know where that would go if we no longer recognize endangered international species in the United States? All of these conspire together. And I call it the perfect extinction storm because one of my favorite books that really moved me was The Perfect Storm, written by Sebastian Unger. Mm -hmm. And it takes place where I live. I actually went to college with young men that died in that wow. on the Andrea Gale, when these incredibly seasoned mariners went out to catch fish, and they encountered a perfect storm. Not perfect in its beauty, but perfect in its lethality, because all the elements didn't work in a vacuum. They conspired together. The time of year with the tide, with the moon cycle, made a perfect, unsurvivable storm. And we have done that today. Climate change does not work independently. Climate change inspires with habitat and conspires from it because it is fed by it. You cut down the natural carbon storage in a Sumatran rainforest. You then take that bank of carbon and then actually make it the problem as climate change. You denude that forest, those animals then become a part of the $20 billion black market trade industry. So you can see how all of these uh, elements of the perfect extinction storm conspired together. Mm -hmm. So we do have that challenge. And for the first time in history, which is pretty remarkable in a very depressing way, we are no longer looked upon internationally as the leader. We have lost our role on our throne as the international pioneer in conservation. People don't realize national parks around the world, Africa, Madagascar, are based on the American model of science used to conserve resources for many, many reasons. The whole idea of a national park or a protected wild place comes from European immigrants, especially from England, the Puritans, that, this, that separated, came here, they did not believe resources belonged to a nobleman. They were for all of us. And out of the calamity of the industrial period, we made great changes, which led to the Endangered Species Act, which is why today you could go to the Potomac and catch a rock bass or rockfish or watch a bald eagle catch it before you do. And just because we see it today doesn't mean we can witness it tomorrow. Well, thank you for for providing that context. Um, you, you were talking a moment ago about something that I think is really important, which is a reminder 
that historically conservation has always been a bipartisan value. Uh, and, and you reminded us that Teddy Roosevelt, and, and in fact, uh, even beyond that, the, the great environmentalists of that era were Republicans, Gifford Pinchot and many of the others. Um, we've somehow lost our way, and, and a lot of these things have become uh, partisan issues. Um, and, and we just came from a hearing where my colleagues across the aisle uh, are proposing what I think are some bad ideas that would undermine the Endangered Species Act, but they did offer some verbal assurances. They said they don't want species to go extinct, but, and then they explained why they wanted to weaken this part of the ESA or that part. And I couldn't help draw the, the parallel to the healthcare debate we're having where they say they don't want people to die because they can't afford healthcare, but they're supporting things that would lead to that result. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, you, you've heard the same assurances that I have from these folks that were just trying to make the act friendlier to ranchers and the oil and gas industry. Are you comforted at all by those assurances or do you think that the black letter law um, is something that we actually need to fight for? Well, I don't think the IRS is comforted if I say I paid my taxes. I have to show that I paid my taxes. I have to prove that I paid my taxes or I can be held to the most miserable accounting there is, an audit, right? Mm -hmm. I am not comforted by one's wishes or desires. I want to see it on paper and I want to see it exercised in the field. And actually, I was actually dismayed to hear one of the congressmen actually talk about the value of this and then brought up this nuisance, the Louisiana pine snake, and said how, and he said, no one likes that pine yeah. snake. Notice how they always pick a species yeah, that, that has a no, kind of a diminished name. And, and, or something. and I wanted to raise my hand and say, I love that pine snake. I actually became, when I was a young boy growing up in the inner city, my parents bought me a Peterson Field Guide, and I broke the back of the binding of that book. And the page that was probably smeared the most was the Gila monster, the, the desert tortoise, and um, the Louisiana pine snake and the eastern hognose. What's snake. so cool about the Louisiana it's pine snake? It's just an incredible snake that lives in this very specific pine barren type of habitat. And um, they have the ability to make their way up trees vertically as they pursue birds and nests. Mm -hmm. And they're just a beautiful, elegant, mysterious snake. And through one's prejudice, well, we could just let it fall away. Well, imagine if yeah. we had done that with alligators. Yeah. So you can look at an alligator in a captive environment and admire it, and, but if you were on the Chafalaya and you were rednecking it one day in your inner tube with a cold beverage and an anvil-sized head of an alligator bubbled up next to you, you'd be terrified. You should because you're about to get eaten. But we look <laughs> beyond that and recognize the incredible keystone value of that species. Yeah. And we recovered it. And that the ripple effect of saving the alligator has had a huge impact on all the other wildlife that lives in Florida. Look at your home state, all the amazing things. You know, we've talked about California. My greatest memory of recent was being in Año Nuevo mm, National the Park seals. with Professor Dan Costas, who invited me along to actually go capture an elephant seal. Wow, attack, that's a big animal. Yes, attach a satellite, remove a satellite data receiver and we were able to look and unravel the mysteries of this animal information that comes to its conservation. Today anyone of any economic, social level, every political um, point can go to Año Nuevo, 
and walk that plank and that rail system and you can physically experience an American landscape that goes back thousands of years. People don't realize that not a century ago, we only had a hundred elephant seals and we had to get them from Mexico. What a great conservation success. An incredible, we actually borrowed, well, we, Mexico loaned us, thank God they didn't have to swim through a wall, <laughs> but they loaned us these elephant seals, which we used as the seeds to rebuild our population of what I call the ultimate battle of the bulge, which you can see every December and January. That's impressive. And you can see it in my district too. Uh, if you want to come across the Golden Gate Bridge to the Point Reyes National Seashore, right. we've got elephant I've seals on yep. Drake's Beach and a lot of our beaches. So what a great success. We get some of that in, in California as well, the, the diminishing of species if they're not perceived as being charismatic or having some great commercial value. You talked about the Louisiana pine snake. But or the San Francisco garter snake. I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen a San Francisco garter snake. I'm not sure. But it's arguably the most beautiful snake in the world. It is yellows, orange, purple, blues. It is stunning, stunning snake. And they are on the edge of extinction. And they fall under the radar screen. But they symbolize the importance of the Endangered Species Act. Mm -hmm. Because the ESA approaches conservation blindly. Even if a species is inconvenient. An inconvenient species. But in the end, we don't know the overall contribution that right. species makes to the health of an ecosystem for which represents the resources that our children will need to depend upon. The, the Delta smelt is a little uh, feeder fish in the estuary of uh, California's two biggest rivers as they come together, a lot of water projects uh, impact that habitat and so it's constantly being ridiculed and diminished and attacked uh, by some of my colleagues across the aisle but it I think you would find the Delta smelt a very interesting uh, species even if chain. even if I had other things I was more interested in the, than this fish smelts as a whole this group of fish are the basic building block mm. of life for Forage, species. Right? What do salmon eat? Well, you know, if we lose this primary energy infusion into the ecosystem, commercial fisheries like salmon or steelhead trout would fall prey to poor management, and ultimately we pay the price. It's one of the things I like a lot, and my, my kids especially like about your show, is that you, you not only um, introduce us to really bizarre and quirky animals, but you... you you have a certain awe for them and you explain why they're really important and and worth protecting. Um, do you get a lot of good feedback from your listeners and viewers uh, about that? I do. I, I do get a lot of feedback. Um, I am though um, alarmed by really the incredible negative uh, social media feedback you get. Uh, it's funny, we live in a world now where everybody's an expert yeah. and everybody has an opinion. And people will t take their precious time and your precious time to tell you something that instead of listening, and they do it in such a polarizing, snarky. angry, 
just jaded way. You so have I mean, to, especially Twitter. It, yeah, it's a harsh it's just, I, 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 sometimes I, 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 well, I stopped reading it. But um, so that element, I, I, I struggle with. Sometimes it works wonderfully, and sometimes it doesn't. But I do get a, an incredible amount of feedback, and and now that I've been doing this for a few decades. I meet people that are scientists today, that are veterinarians, that are, you know, biologists based on an experience that I had in my TV show that 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 they found enjoyable and perhaps inspired them to have this career. To me, that's the greatest mm-hmm. reward I have. So that's amazing, and um, I have to assume that there there have been some actions that have come from people who are inspired by your shows. Uh, that have actually made a difference out there uh, in the marketplace or on public policy. Is there anything that you can sort of think of that you're especially proud of uh, where ordinary folks who just cared about the environment uh, were able to speak up and actually create some change? Well, a few years ago I did a documentary about endangered amphibians. You know, California, as with many states, is a big challenge with this deadly fungus called chytrid fungus. And it was amazing how amphibians had just been lost. People don't realize that these are animals that have survived five major extinctions, have been on this planet for 350 million years, and we are on course to lose 50% of our amphibians in the next three decades from this deadly fungus. And I was able to do a story on the hellbender, which this giant salamander, which only lives in the most pristine cold rivers, in places like the Ozark. And what they discovered was that the that there was a chemical, an agricultural chemical, I think called atrazine. I may have that wrong, but and and it caused literally if you took that and injected it into a frog, a male frog would develop ovaries overnight. So it was actually causing sterility amongst these salamanders, which was blocking their restoration. And everyone thought it was kind of silly, this giant salamander shooting blanks. You know, this whole sort of size, I guess, doesn't matter joke. Everyone (laughs) thinking, until they discovered a high um, spike in sterility amongst human beings Ah, that lived in that area. So it's an endocrine disruption. So I was able to take the scientific, sort of complex story and deconstruct it and share it in an interesting, fun way Mm -hmm. With the audience, and when you get feedback, where people say, now I get the value of this salamander and become a part of the solution to conservation, I think those are, that is what I take from those moments. That's great. Can we talk about the vaquita? Sure. Most people aren't familiar with the vaquita, but it's a really cute and very small marine mammal, a porpoise. Tiny, tiny, tiny little cetacean, about, you know, about three and a half, four feet long, this big. And it is one of the most endangered cetaceans, which is a toothed whale, uh, in the world right now. Less than 40 or 50 of these animals around. They're in trouble. And it's very scary. And and it it is, they've entered that realm of anything goes. Basically, you know, we're shaking the dice and we don't know what's going to happen. It's in the Gulf of California, Baja, Mexico. So it's not within our borders, but it's very close to the United States. And why should the United States, why does the United States have a role to play in trying to keep this animal from blinking out? Well, the, the three factors that impact the survival, the reason why it's critically endangered is 
One is climate change. These animals have very specific needs and the food that they target could be impacted from climate change. The other is plastic waste. Uh, marine debris has had a huge impact and when a species is as vulnerable as this animal is, there's no room for error. And, um, and, and wayward nets, forgotten derelict necks, they get caught up in these nets and they choke to death. We're pursuing the same prey that they're pursuing. So it's this sort of mm -hmm. accidental competition. And of course, the black market wild trade where their body parts are harvested. We need to care because this is an American creature. This is, we don't have the right to determine the future of this species. It has won that long journey of evolution to be where it is. And because of no fault of, it is own, of its own, it is now facing extinction. Extinction is not new. 99% of anything, 99.9% of, .9 of all life that has ever lived on this earth is extinct. But the difference of extinction today is that the asteroid isn't coming from up in the atmosphere. Yeah. We are that asteroid slamming into the earth through our behavior. And which is ironic because we are quite unique. We understand for every action there's a reaction. And we fail to make those wise decisions. I mean, sometimes we do. Um, and this is our chance. What can Met we do about the vaquita? Well, there's a, there is great effort from the Fish and Wildlife mm -hmm. Service with their Mexican partners. Uh, there's been some significant investment. We are at that point where we were with the Blackfooted Ferret, with the California mm -hmm. Condor, where literally it's time for the what I call the conservation alien abduction. Ca these Captain animals <laughs> literally see these bipedal primate aliens <laughs> come in, scoop them up. Yeah. But what we've learned from the Blackfooted Ferret and the Condor is it doesn't mean it's the end. Yeah. It could be the beginning of a chance of recovery. Remember, less than a dozen black-footed ferrets led to a sustained population today. Mm -hmm. California condors, while micromanaged, are recovering mm -hmm. from two dozen animals. So it is possible we could save this creature. We're doing some of that captive breeding recovery with coho salmon in my district as well, but I, I, you, you do think that that kind of an intervention is inevitable if we're going to... Absolutely, and, and there was some kind of used in the wrong perspective, but there is this idea where we have so many conservation challenges today with limited resources. We are kind of like the battlefield triage moment. You know, the helicopter lands and there's all these injured people. Who do you save? Do you save the ones that have the best chance of survival? Do you save the ones that are most charismatic? Do you save the ones that have a keystone multi-relationship of symbiosis in their ecosystem? Mm -hmm. How do we save them? And somewhere in that, that, that slippery slope is where this incredible little yeah. porpoise lives. Uh, the, the porpoise is in danger because uh, there's a fish called the totoaba uh, you talked about the, right. the, the trafficking issue right. and the, the rise of the middle class in China has led to some demand for things that didn't used to be right. demanded. And a lot of money can be made from the swim bladder right. of this fish. And, and so the fishermen in Mexico are not even trying to kill the vaquita. It's a bycatch. It's just yeah. standing in the way of them making a lot of money by trafficking these swim bladders often through the United States. So we just talked about this a little bit in the hearing where you were a witness and... and uh, you did a great job explaining why we, we have a stake in global species trafficking and what it means for extinction. Yeah, so if we were to not 
recognize the in, the the stature of of being endangered of another species, I think the consequences of that could be devastating. What happens to a critically endangered chimpanzee that finds its way smuggled into the United States if we no longer recognize it as being in peril? Is it in limbo? You know, what happens to that species? And many of the arguments of these organizations that are doing that are these aren't frontline major NGOs that are recognized for hands-on conservation. There are many groups that work with the federal government, that work with the Fish and Wildlife Service, that work, for example, the, the AZA. They are partners. We have stud, see, we have agencies that are expertise, private organizations that, that are against this idea of of not internationally recognizing other countries' endangered species on our country landscape. And those organizations that work in partnership, you know, we have the, the ISIS stud books that are used by Zeus to make sure we're not interbreeding and all this sort of stuff. And the question I want to ask, those folks that are so focused on breeding this endangered species under the auspice of conservation, what is their conservation? How many of those animals are they getting back to that landscape? Getting back to that land because most are they going about, somewhere uh, else? About trophy hunting here in the U.S. and money that can be made. Yeah. And I am an avid sports person. I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love connecting to nature. It's incredible today that you can go connect with the resource mm-hmm. that was in peril not so long ago. It came through wise management and a partnership into, between state and federal conservation management agencies. And the idea that we're losing sight of that, um, many people will pay a price for that. Right. Teddy Roosevelt was a big hunter as well, but he supported the conservation and stewardship side of that relationship with wildlife. And sometimes we don't always see that, uh, that broader connection these days. I want to ask you about the border wall. Uh, many of us here in Congress think, and, and around the country think that this border wall is a crazy idea for lots of reasons, but uh, we probably haven't talked enough about what it would do to the environment and wildlife in particular. You have spoken out on this. I have. So tell us about it. Well, the border wall would literally decapitate the Isthmus of Panama. This incredible, miraculous land bridge that appeared three million years ago that connected South America to North America and that became the ultimate uh, geographical corridor that connected species and allowed for profound migration. Beyond the, that contribution to animal diversity, for example, all the marsupials we have in North America evolved, in Central North America mm-hmm. evolved in South America. All the carnivores, bears and puma and jaguars, they all evolved in North America. They would not be there today if it wasn't for this natural migratory route. Now, as for today, there are still species that migrate. They migrate, migrate for water, for food, for nesting areas, for access to mates, to escape predation, for seasonality. This wall would cut through hundreds of species that use it for nesting and so many 
people that are much smarter than me like to tell me that how could that affect a bird? A bird can fly. Hmm. Well, turkeys may fly, but where does a turkey nest? It nests in the ground. Many, many species of birds nest in the ground. We have burrowing owls. There are, uh, the, the Mexican gray wolf, which is on the brink of extinction, this literally could be the nail in the extinction coffin if we were successful to establish a wall from the Atlantic to the Pacific that would basically stifle this incredible journey of life. Wow. We have been joined uh, by my uh, interns, three of my incredible, hardworking... They look so young and unjaded. <laughs> they are. They are. We're working fresh. on that part, though. Uh, so uh, as a treat for their summer experience working in our office, we've given them a chance to join the podcast and each of them to ask you a question. Thank you. So uh, yeah. let's, uh, let's start with Sebastian. Take it away. And, and tell us uh, your full name and where you're from so that everyone in my district will know uh, a little bit about you. Oh, great. Well, um, my name is Sebastian Miller. Uh, I'm originally from Santa Rosa, California, mm -hmm. but I am currently at school at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, and my question is... Given the almost unprecedented scientific consensus and huge ramifications surrounding climate change and habitat destruction, why do you think so such a large portion of the population is unwilling to curb, engage with, or even acknowledge the existence of climate change and habitat destruction? Well, I think what we have to do, Sebastian, is really distill climate change down to the real world scenario that people face every day in their lives. I live in New England. I am an avid fisherman. This year, we can, I can only catch one cod a day. I used to be able to go catch 20 cod. I can only catch one cod a day because despite good management policies we have in New England, despite some good, healthy, cleaner waters, Cod spawn in a very specific area off of the coast of New England, as they have done for millions of years. That water and that bay is now too warm for them to mm -hmm. spawn, and it stresses them out. How do you fix that? You can clean a river. How do you cool an ocean? We can look to uh, Alaska. I always say if you want to find someone who can tell you the story of climate change, go find a conservative Alaskan who has to live off salmon, whose house has collapsed beneath permafrost, which is no longer permanent. How ironic. The, land, the, the, the um, muskag beneath you that has been frozen since the Pleistocene so much that we call it permanently frozen, falls apart, snapping conduits for oil and, and electricity, whole villages tumbling into the sea. We now see salmon showing up in areas, historically they weren't because of new warming opportunities. So salmon showing up in the Aleutian Islands. We have birds that have evolved to migrate based on a, on a light cycle and they are driven to begin their migration, not because of temperature, but because of light. So they spent their time in South America, and they all go to these little refuges off of Alaska and in the Arctic to breed, where they don't have the competition of predators. 
and they will have freedom to breed and they will have this big buffet of resources which will be the insects that explode. The insects don't emerge because of light, they emerge because of heat. So all these birds arrive and their meal has hatched up before they get there. These are just some of the many, many examples we can see. And I could take you and show you an example around the world that is the result of climate change. And for the first time in the history of our country, where we have always been the leader, as we were discussing earlier, we have walked away from the table as the leader to now the global pariah. We are that elephant in the room because of our failure to exercise the muscles that we made everyone build. When it We're going to get back to that. Thing. I hope so. We'll see. All right. Well, Molly, you're next. Um, I'm Molly McInerney. I'm from San Anselmo in Marin County, and I go to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, my question was, what it's a pretty simple one, but what should we be doing or what are some simple suggestions for what we should be doing in our day-to-day -day lives to help conserve natural resources? Well, I, and, I, and I think back to a little bit of what Sebastian said. So while many people don't believe in climate change, many people do believe in climate change um, around the world and 99.9% and .9 of scientists and, and many uh, regular citizens like all of us here believe in in climate change and have witnessed it in our lives um, what we can do to make changes is look at how you live look at how you use resources you know a personal challenge that i made in my life with my wife and my family is we wanted to kind of reduce our we live in a tiny little island so we started a farm we started farming our own food and we and this year as of a few years ago about 60% of we eat we grow which to me I never thought I'd be able to pull that off um, and um, so not everyone's going to be able to do that but I mean look at our use of plastics you have bottled I try never to drink water from a bottled water source Bottled water comes to you, it gives you a typical uh, six ounce bottle, gives you about an hour of hydration in, in, in a moderate situation. And it's presented to you in a vessel that will survive 400 years in a landfill. We could change that and make a huge difference. And that checks off everything from landfills to climate change. So I think there are things we can do in our own lives, every way possible to make radical changes and baby step changes that would improve the opportunity for survival. I think the biggest thing you could do is if you're a parent, is bring your kids to a wild place. Put them face to face with these resources. Observe the marvels of nature because the truth is you cannot protect what you do not love. And you will not love it if you don't have a grasp for it. Good, good question. Well, uh, last but not least, Nadim, take it away. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, so I'm from Santa Fe, um, Marin County, and uh, I'm currently a joint degree student at the Harvard County School of Government, pursuing my master's in public policy there, alongside AJD at UC Berkeley Law. Um, and my question is more of a fun one. Um, if you could be any marine mammal for <laughs> one day, 
what would it be and why? I would be a polar bear. <laughs> See, people don't realize polar bears are actually protected, not as a terrestrial animal, but under the Marine Mammal Act. And they are 100% marine mammal. They need sea and sea ice to survive. Uh, they have the ability to swim 60 miles in one day. Um, they are incredible creatures. That, uh, I have seen a polar bear take its hand and reach through four feet of ice, sit and wait in minus 70 degrees over a little breathing hole about this big of a seal and sit and then right at that rope moment reach in and pull out a seal this big through a hole that's about eight inches nine inches wide and actually pull it through and watching them survive and seeing the relationship between parent and offspring i mean they're just an incredible incredible creature so i think i'd want to be a polar bear you don't want to be the seal. You don't want to be the seal. By the way, what color is a polar bear? It's white, isn't it? It's not white. No. They actually don't have, they don't emit color. What it is is you're seeing their hairs are hollow. So you're actually seeing white reflected around them through their hairs. If you look at them in captivity, they often have a different color, a darker color or sometimes even a more bluish color. But the whiteness of a polar bear comes from the environment around them. Well, Jeff Corwin, uh, I could go on and on in this conversation, but it has to end at some point. So thank you. Thank you are you. not only uh, one of the best uh, ambassadors for wildlife uh, out there, you're someone who genuinely cares. You're not just a TV celebrity. You come to the Capitol, you testify in hearings, you work with Defenders of Wildlife and other groups. So you are the real deal, and I hope everybody uh, listening to this podcast tunes in to your uh, new show on ABC. Not so new anymore. It two, yeah, it's two years as the evolution of Ocean Mysteries became Ocean Trek. Yeah, it's a number one series in its timeline. As it, it should be. Good. Congratulations, Thank and thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin Zone, Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. <laughs>